Good morning, folks. Wonderful to see so many of you here, especially since I know how many people have been crook uh, this last week or two. A special welcome to those of you who are joining us online. We're sorry that you can't be with us. I, I do think probably the last couple of weeks, um, just from people getting in contact with me, it's probably been our most impacted few weeks of sickness and COVID and all the kinds of other things as well. So please do keep an eye out for each other. And if you notice uh, some folk who haven't been around for a little bit, touch base with them, uh, pray for them perhaps over the phone, because um, it's easy to lose track uh, in the misery of winter. Uh, so do keep an eye out for each other and care for each other. Um, it'd be wonderful if you had your Bibles open at today's passage. Uh, it's on page 1064, John chapter 2. Uh, and uh, there'll be a service sheet that you'll have there with you as well, hopefully if you grabbed one when you came in. If you didn't, feel free just to jump up and grab one from one of the entrances, uh, and you'll see that there's um, uh, some passages, uh, a, a service outline sheet, a sermon sheet um, outline on the back with a bunch of the passages that we'll be looking at together this morning. Well, the passage that we're looking at today, the turning of water into wine has to be just about one of the most unusual accounts uh, in the Gospels. And it's an account that is unique to John's Gospel alone. I've been reflecting a little bit this week on why it is that John gives it such a prominent position when it's not mentioned uh, by others. Um, and I've got some thoughts on that, but I'm still, I'm still thinking about whether they're worthy to share. So um, chat with me afterwards if you're curious. But compared to Jesus' other miracles, compared to the making of blind people see... Uh, the, the making of the crippled to be able to walk, compared to the feeding of thousands of people from just a handful of loaves and a couple of fishes, compared to the raising of a dead girl, the raising of Lazarus from the tomb that we'll see towards the end of John's Gospel, well, turning water into wine kind of seems just a bit of a gimmicky party trick by comparison, doesn't it? Especially since Jesus himself, I don't know if you noticed this as we read, Jesus himself doesn't seem overly excited about what he was being asked to do in the performing of this amazing, miraculous action. You don't really get the feeling that Jesus would even have put this particular sign in his top five miracles if he had a choice about it. And yet here it's recorded as the first, the one that leads off John's account of Jesus' miraculous ministry. What's going on there? Uh, let's have a look at how the passage begins. We'll read the opening five verses of chapter two, uh, which set the scene for this unusual um, and first moment of Jesus' public ministry. Although perhaps it's not as public as it first seems. Chapter two, verse one. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now, this is no kind of merely two-hour-long sit-down wedding reception with alternating chicken and beef dishes and a half-hour dancing session to wind up the night before everyone heads home, maybe within three or four hours. People would have travelled to Cana for this wedding from far and wide for an event that probably could have stretched on for up to a week or so. 
You couldn't simply have asked the wedding MC to quickly wind things up as soon as you got down to your backup esky of cask wine if things started to run out. It was the bridegroom's responsibility at these weddings, typically, to ensure that hospitality was properly taken care of for everyone who was in attendance, to make sure that all those who had travelled to the wedding were looked after for its full duration. In fact, it wasn't unheard of for brides' families to actually sue the bridegroom if his hospitality and the bar tab left the bride's family feeling a little bit socially embarrassed or shamed by how poverty-stricken it was, how little it was, how poor it was. It was the bridegroom's responsibility that this wedding play out the way it should have. And so it's not immediately clear why it's Jesus' mother who feels that she should take any kind of responsibility, really, for this looming social disaster that was besetting this wedding. Where was the bridegroom at this point? This this was the kind of thing that the bridegroom should have had sorted, should have had his attention on. Uh, Down in verse 12, at the end of the little section, the end, end of the event, we get the indication that Jesus' entire family was also there at this wedding, that Jesus' mother seems to have likely been widowed at this point because Joseph isn't mentioned amongst Jesus and his family members who were at the wedding. Perhaps this was the wedding of an intimate and immediate family member towards whom Jesus' mother felt some particular special responsibility. We don't really know. But what we do notice is that Jesus doesn't seem to share the same anxiety about how this wedding is playing out as his mother does. Did you notice that? Jesus says to her, woman, why do you involve me? Now, to hear Jesus addressing his mother as woman, no matter how gently it might be spoken, has an awkwardness, kind of an abruptness to it, doesn't it, that can't help but sound, at best, a little bit condescending in its tone. But I don't think that there's anything dismissive here at all or aloof in Jesus' address to his mother. In fact, there are several occasions throughout John's Gospel, I don't have time to work through them today, but I have put the references there on your server sheets, in which Jesus addresses a female in precisely precisely this way. But whenever he uses that phrase, he is never speaking out of annoyance or condescending aloofness. In each case, actually... Jesus is inviting the particular woman to press pause on her own anxieties for a moment and redirect their attention to hear fully and deeply what it is that he is about to say. It's usually actually the start of an act of compassion in which Jesus discloses something deeper and truer about himself. I wonder if you've ever had one of those moments when you've been perhaps with a friend after a particularly rough, pretty rough week, and you've just kind of gone into one of those ceaseless rants that giving voice and vent to your anxiety that had been pent up. And at some point in the, the kind of the verbal vomit of your anxieties, the person said, Steve, just, just a word, just to put a pause on the flow of your anxieties, to reorient yourself to perhaps some comfort or warning or gentle rebuke that they're about to draw your attention to. They've had to interrupt your anxious monologue to help you get out of your own head. 
Jesus says to his mother at this point, Woman, my hour has not yet come. What exactly was Jesus getting at with this cryptic comment about his hour that apparently had not yet come? Sadly, no doubt due to her own anxious distractions over the wine shortage, Jesus' mother doesn't even seem to have paused for a moment to wonder at what these cryptic words of Jesus might have meant. I wonder if we ever find ourselves engaging with Jesus in that same kind of way. So quick to pour out our own anxieties. And don't hear me wrong, Jesus, as we'll see, Jesus is gracious and he patiently and delightedly listens, even when we vomit our anxieties out without a moment's thought. But I wonder if you ever have that moment when you're so quick to pour out your anxieties to Jesus that there simply is no time or room left in your own thinking to listen to the words that he might have to say to us, the way in which he might actually address us. Jesus' mother was so constrained by her own most pressing anxiety that she just continues speaking right past Jesus without seeming to register his words at all. Uh, Have a look with me at verse 5 again, and and we'll continue on for the remainder of this wedding episode. Verse 5. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 80 to 120 litres. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realise where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. First off, it's worth noticing here that what we see Jesus performing is not labelled a miracle at all, but a sign. Now, don't get me wrong, Jesus has done something miraculous, although curiously, we don't even know when the the water turning into wine actually occurred. There's no mention made of the miraculous moment specifically, only its result. But the fact that Jesus has done something miraculous, I think, is largely beside the point for John as he's recording this event. What matters to John, who records this, is that Jesus has performed a sign. Uh, Jesus' actions here point us forward to some other more important reality. Signs are never significant in and of themselves, are they? Signs are only ever significant because of what they draw our attention to, which is something other than themselves. And that means that the details described in today's passage are not only historical details giving us colour to the events as they apparently were recorded as happening, they are details that illustrate or signify some deeper meaning to Jesus' actions, some deeper meaning that paint a picture for us of the kind of glory that Jesus owns. Now, on a surface level, it might appear as if Jesus has simply caved and consented 
to doing exactly what his mother had asked of him. After all, there was no wine. Now there is wine. Problem solved. But there's actually more going on in how Jesus responds to the situation than that, isn't there? I mean, Jesus isn't simply solving a liquor supply problem here, is he? Presumably, there would have been a ton of empty wine jars already stacked neatly behind the bar. They'd run out of wine. There must have been a stack of empty wine jars. Why not just miraculously refill those wine jars rather than reusing some random water jars left over from a a previous ceremonial washing ritual that might have happened days and days ago, maybe even weeks ago? Why this odd decision of Jesus to first fill ceremonial washing jars full to the brim and only then to go on and provide the much-needed wine. Kind of seems like a needlessly complicated and multi-step process, doesn't it? And then there's the question of the wine's quality that our attention is being drawn to. After observing that the guests have already drunk too much wine, the bemused banquet master quizzes the negligent bridegroom about why on earth he waited so long before bringing out the best wine, the choice wine, to be used in the wedding banquet. Now, of course, the poor clueless bridegroom wouldn't have had the faintest idea where this premium wine had come from. And so what we end up with at the end of the story is pretty much everyone involved in these events, apart from maybe the servants, being completely flustered and kind of confused as to what has gone on and how they ended up here. What exactly is this strangely covert, secret thing that Jesus has done, this rather convoluted miracle, what is it actually supposed to signify? What's it supposed to be a sign of? Uh, In the very next chapter of John's Gospel, chapter 3, I think we perhaps get a bit of a clue. In chapter 3, we won't get a chance to read it all today, but uh, I'm referring here to verses 25 through to 30. In chapter 3, we find this event recorded in which a group of disciples are arguing with each other over whether it is Jesus or John the Baptist who has the greatest authority to purify, to spiritually wash clean God's people. They are literally arguing over who has got the greatest authority to perform a ceremonial washing, Jesus or John the Baptist. And John the Baptist settles the debate by identifying himself just as the best man, but Jesus as being the bridegroom. Notice exactly the same pattern, a a debate or a, a focus given to ceremonial washing, followed up by one about being a bridegroom. These are John the Baptist's words to settle the argument about why Jesus is better suited to ceremonially wash or clean God's people in verse 29 of chapter 3. There, John the Baptist says, the friend that's he's speaking about himself there, the friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and it's now complete. He, that is Jesus, must become greater, I must become less. In identifying Jesus as the bridegroom, John wasn't simply picking a random illustration out of nowhere No doubt John had in mind passages from the Old Testament, such as the one that we had read earlier today from Isaiah 62. Have a look at these verses. 
In Isaiah 62, uh, a little selection of some of the paragraphs from that chapter, we read this. The Lord, speaking about the God, God there, the Lord will take delight in you. As a young man marries a young woman, so will your builder marry you. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. Never again will foreigners drink the new wine for which you have toiled. And those who gather the grapes will drink it in the courts of my sanctuary. Speaking there about the temple. The temple is going to effectively become like a wedding venue between God and his people in which wonderful wine will be poured out for all to enjoy. The Old Testament prophet Isaiah was looking forward to a day in which God himself would visit his people and play the role of a better bridegroom hosting a wedding banquet in the temple in which the very courtyards of the temple sanctuary itself would be the venue. A banquet at which God would pour out the choicest new wine in celebration of, in delight over, his precious and beloved bride, his people. You know, I don't think it's any accident that in the second half of chapter 2, we find Jesus visiting that very wedding venue in which Isaiah had imagined God's wedding feast with his people would take place. Have a look with me at the second half of chapter 2, verse 13. See what happens there. Immediately following on from the time in Cana, we continue to read, When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume you. Here, Jesus, the bridegroom, arrives at his father's house at the wedding reception venue that Isaiah had spoken of, only to find his courts, the courts of the temple, the courts of the sanctuary, not overflowing with wine, but as defiled and decrepit as a livestock market. Certainly not a fitting venue for a wedding between God and his precious bride, his people. And so taking a whip of cords, Jesus sets about cleansing the courtyards of all that was defiling them. The bridegroom, Jesus, has arrived at the wedding venue, ready to delight in his precious bride, but finds neither his people nor the temple even remotely prepared to receive him. That's exactly what was said, wasn't it, in John chapter 1, when the Word became flesh, and yet even those who were his own did not receive him or recognise him. And I think this is what has been on Jesus' mind back in verse 3 at the start of today's passage when Jesus had told his mother, woman, my hour has not yet come. See, Jesus was unwilling to play the role of a bridegroom to God's people, pouring out the new wine of God's blessing upon them until He had first completely washed and cleansed them, making them pure and worthy objects of God's delight and affection. And I think that's why Jesus chooses the the, the ceremonial washing jars to fill them to the brim with water first, 
before going on to provide the wine. Actually, it's not until the night of Jesus' own arrest, the very night before his own death and resurrection, that Jesus acknowledges that his hour has finally come. Uh, Have a look at these verses from John chapter 13. We don't have time to read the whole passage today, but um, it's one that's well worth going back and having a look at later on. Uh, At the start of the chapter we read, it was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave his world. And the passage goes on to describe how Jesus was about to love his disciples by giving his life. And then he goes on to describe, John goes on to describe, how Jesus poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. And you might remember that Peter goes on to say, well, wash all of me then. Uh, And Jesus says, you only need your feet washed. I've already washed you. You disciples have been made clean. Jesus recognises that his hour has finally come at that moment to first wash and cleanse and purify those who he loves from all their guilt, all their sin, all their shame, all that makes them unworthy of God's delighting in them. And he does it, he washes them, he cleanses us so that he might also lavish his fullest delight and affection upon them with the same kind of intensity that a bridegroom might delight over his bride at a wedding feast that's overflowing with the choicest, the best of wines. See, friends, this first sign, John chapter 2, is effectively a summary of the whole gospel that follows. It's a little story that encapsulates the flow of what John is saying is the good news. The bridegroom has come. He washes and cleanses so that he might also delight and rejoice over the one who will become his bride. And when Jesus' mother asked him to play the bridegroom's role at the wedding of Cana and find out where he could get some extra wine, she wasn't asking too much of him. She was asking too little of him. She comes to Jesus anxiously asking him to fix a catering blunder, a social faux pas, a hospitality mishap. And it's striking, though, isn't it, that that Jesus deals graciously with her controlling anxieties. He doesn't just brush them aside dismissively. He doesn't belittle her because of them. And there is perhaps a comforting lesson here that even with our narrowly focused anxieties that we routinely pepper Jesus with, he does not despise us for speaking of those anxieties before him. I often find myself so focused upon the anxieties that are gripping me at any one moment, at any one time, often even anxieties that aren't mine to worry about, just as it wasn't Mary's anxiety to worry about this particular wedding, and find myself pouring those anxieties out before Jesus in a way that I noticed later on, I paid very little heed to what Jesus himself might have to say to me in those moments of anxiety or fear. 
Yet Jesus has set his heart and mind upon achieving for us something far more glorious, far more breathtaking than we typically ever come asking of him. He doesn't despise us for the anxieties we speak to him, but friends, we, we neglect the wonders of what he has to offer when that's all we do, when we won't stop speaking to listen to what he has to say to us. For far from waiting in the wings, content just to play an understudy to our own failed plans and projects, Jesus has set his heart upon making himself our bridegroom. Jesus has set his heart upon being the one in whose intimate delight we will find ourselves complete and loved. Complete and loved because he has first washed us to make us worthy of that delight that God intends to shower us with. Friends, whatever anxieties you might come and pepper Jesus with this week, can I encourage you to also pause and remember what Jesus himself has set his heart to do for us and show his love towards us. Let's pray. Dearest Father, we confess that we often speak to Jesus, we often treat him as an understudy to our own failed plans and ambitions and purposes. We we reach out for him when our own capacity uh, is shown up as having reached its limit. When there is a lack that we find ourselves unable to deal with. Father, thank you that in those moments he deals graciously and gently with us. And yet, Father, we ask that we might also pause to reflect on his own words, that that night in which his hour did come, that day on which he gave himself, he cleansed us completely, fully and finally. Not only to free us from our own guilty consciences, but so that God himself might delight and rejoice over us as a bridegroom would reduce, rejoice over his bride. And Father, in that knowledge, help us to find both joy and peace. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.